statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. I'm thrilled to be back in the studio after a couple of weeks off, and I have a wonderful guest joining me live in the studio today, so that always makes me happy when I'm looking at my guests face-to-face. Before we get started, I just want to give a couple uh, quick show notes. If you're listening and you'd like to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. you. You can dial 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. And also be sure to follow us on our social media. We have an Instagram page at Women to Watch Media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Women to Watch Talk. And as always, uh, visit our website to find out um, all about the events we have coming up and uh, our incredible lineup, which is scheduled through September, I think, right now, at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Um, so I'm very excited this afternoon to have a guest with me here in the studio. She flew all the way from Pittsburgh <laughs> to be with us, um, so I'm very grateful. Her name is uh, Dr. Sasha Hines, and Sasha is a psychologist with a master's in applied positive psychology. Um, she also has a doctorate in developmental psychology, um, and she joins us today to talk about her personal story and, and the work that she's doing. So, Sasha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. That's a, a very, very inspiring intro, by the way. So I feel very oh. honored to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm honored. I really am. And I'm so looking forward to it. You and I have spoken um, a little bit before the show and uh, about a month ago. And you know that the work that you do is fascinating to me. And uh, I know that this, this hour will go quickly, but we'll try to get as much in as we can. Um, and as always, we're going to start with your growing up years and a little bit about your, sure. your background and your uh, family. So sure. talk for a few minutes. Um, yeah. First of all, I just also want to say I have a bit of a cold. Yes, <laughs> so, you do. I meant, So yes. my voice is a little bit hoarse. So sorry about that, guys. Um, I, as a kid, I was, um, I was really an athlete. I was not a, really a scholar. I was more an athlete. So um, my whole sort of the direction of my life was really pushed towards sports. And um, by the time I was, I don't know, about 12, 13, I started playing. Tennis was sort of my exclusive. At that point, I was really focused on tennis. And um, I played sports at school, but I then I had sort of like a whole extracurricular life of tennis training and um, summers in Florida and all sorts of – anyway, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. Um, and I look back on it now and see how much – I, I'm now working as a coach in my profession now, and I see how much that influenced me. It's like how I really understood that relationship between, um, you know, a coach and, and their, you know, their client or their student trying to um, develop their skill and, and pushing them beyond their, 
where they think they can go and pushing them to their limit. Like, I really got that from an early age. Would you say, did you feel overscheduled? Were you overscheduled as a kid? Or Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I really, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> Definitively, yes. Yes, yes. There was a lot of hurry, scurry, worry in my childhood. It was like, you know, changing in the, I'm sure there's a lot of people that can relate to this, but um, I have this, like, the most elegant, gracious, loveliest mother. I mean, she, she you you would look at her, she's like this little bird, and she's so just the most charming, like sweetest person. But man, oh man, she was like hard charging, tennis, <laughs> hockey mom, whatever. Like she was no joke. So um, it was, you know, picking picked up from school and snacks in the car, changing in the back seat, you know, being rushed from one thing to the next. Um, and I mean, she'll cringe when she she hears this stuff now. But I'm like, mom, you know, I was a starter on my lacrosse team. And um, I remember my mom picking me up from a, a, a game, you know, one of our school games, where I was probably playing, like, 50 minutes out of the hour. Like, I was only would be pulled out to rest for a few minutes and then put back in the game. And I remember my mom would pick me up and then take me to my, you know, my training session for oh my gosh. footwork right. or <laughs> weightlifting or whatever it was. Right. I was, like, 14. To perfect your skills. Yes. Yes, so. yes. Well, that's, you know, that's a hot topic. We could probably do a whole show on oh, overscheduling yes. and, and all of that because I think, you know, it's it's still the case today. But oh, probably there's more so. Yeah, now. I think so. I mean, my mom was kind of a, um, I mean, she was like, she was a real pioneer, tiger mom, helicopter parent. Like, there was no terms, but she was it. You know, she she, pioneered, she was the first. Yeah, yeah. She, she pioneered the prototype. Um, she, but... Yeah, so I, I think probably now it's even worse because they people specialize in sports even earlier than they – I mean, I specialized in sports pretty early, yeah, and yeah. it's happening even earlier now. Yeah. Well, I think the good news today is that there's there's conversations around whether, you know, too much is too much yes. and, you know, how to kind of pull back a little bit and let kids be kids. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure, you know, it comes from a place of love, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it still is a great way to – um, open doors as, as an athlete. You get um, recruited to play sports at great schools. And um, and I also think in athletics, like you just learn so much about life, about losing and um, hard work, uh, practice. Um, you know, there's so other, there's very few arenas where you are in the process of deliberate practice. And so as an athlete, I think you, you learn how to do that. And I think that's a skill that you can transfer into any other arena in your life, and it will serve you. Yeah. Tell me, what did mom and dad do for a living? Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, mm-hmm. and my dad worked in finance, and we lived in D.C. as a kid, and then we moved to Connecticut later on Okay. When I was in seventh grade. Okay. So let's... You describe your 20s as, and this is a quote, a, a desperate scramble from one face plant to another. Um, in what way? Um, right. So I, I, I went to – so I was we were chatting about this a little bit earlier, but I, um, I always wanted to go to Harvard. That was my dream from a very young age. Both of my parents had gone there. They had met there. Um, I, it like literally didn't occur to me that there was any other pathway, that that was it. So um, by the time I got there, um, you know, all of those goals, all of that energy that had been 
you know, in, in service of getting into Harvard, once I got there, I was sort of like, well, now what? I don't know who I am or what I want to do or anything. And I don't want to be an athlete anymore. I don't want to be identified as a jock. That's not what I want to do. Um, so that's not, that's not all of me. So, um, I quit playing sports and I just, my life, it already was in a place like I'd had by the end of high school, I had an eating disorder and it started with anorexia and then sort of bulimia took over. But when I got to college, it was like all of this free time unstructured and if you can create like a perfect petri dish for an eating disorder to flourish, it was that. It was like high anxiety, uh, you know, no structure, and lots of time on my hands. Yeah, right. And you know, and like, and I also am someone who doesn't, I'm not great at creating structure. Like, I, I really thrive in an environment where I have a lot of external structure. Yeah. So I got to college for the first time in my life. You know, I didn't have my my day scheduled from eight in the morning until. 10 o'clock at night. Um, and it was just a total flail. Uh, I, I was just a complete mess. And I, I don't think that people that I went to college with would maybe, um, they might agree a little bit, but they'd be like, oh, come on, like you're being too hard on yourself. But I hid so much of what was dysfunctional in my life at that mm-hmm. point. Um, and so I, I sort of increasingly became sort of you know, isolated and alienated from friends. And I just never kind of hit my stride, um, in college. And it, it got to the point where I was, you know, I mean, I was binging and purging like three times a day. It was, it was bad. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so hard when on the outside you appear to have it all together. Um, you know, you're bright, you're beautiful, you're, you're social, you know, you came from a good family, all of those things. And inside you're struggling. It's such a lonely place to be. Yeah. And it made no sense to me. Cause I think at the time I thought, what's wrong with me? You know, I have, I have it all right. I did have that feeling of, you know, I've got this charmed life. I have got great parents. I have, you know, I've been given all these great opportunities. I've had a great education. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been able to have all this success, but I'm miserable. And, and I, I was, I, more than anything, I just think I loathed myself um, because the gap between what I thought, who I thought I could be and who I knew that I was or who I was sort of being was so huge. It was just, there was this, this gulf between the two, you know, mm-hmm. this, um, the best possible self versus the reality okay. of who I was. It yeah. felt so far apart. And I think... Now, as a psychologist, I look back and I'm like, well, right, well, that right there is, that's a recipe for, you know, that's for mental, um, you know, dis, what we call dysphoria or, un, you know, just to being unhappy. Yeah. Would you say, here's a question for you. Did you feel, because um, it's classic to feel shame, any of us that have gone through any kind of adversity like that, there's, there's shame, or was it more for you kind of, were you, were you angry with yourself? Because, as you said, you knew the potential was there, and you weren't you weren't able to to tap into it at that time. I mean, I think it's a combination of both. I think my mo- the co- sort of what I most frequently felt was this like you know c- 
constant, like, I, I hate myself. Why did I just do that? Or, you know, why, why didn't I get started on this paper earlier? And then the panic and the anxiety and the, my way of dealing with that anxiety was with a, you know, with, with an eating disorder and some people, um, you know, over drink or have drug problems. But for me, it was eating disorder. And, um, and I used my eating disorder as a way of managing, you know, a, a lot of uncomfortable feelings. And mm-hmm. mostly for me, it was anxiety. Yeah. Okay. So up until that point, you hadn't shared it with anybody. You were just really keep, you know, battling this by yourself. Totally. And then yeah. <clears throat> you describe coming clean to your mom and ping, picking up the phone and making that phone call. I wonder if you can describe the moment you were in when you realized, I can't do this on my own. So, and I mean, I, you know, I think I, I wish that more women were willing to talk about their sort of struggles with, um, you know, food addiction. I think it's just way, it's easier to call it food addiction because it doesn't matter whether you're overweight or underweight or whatever. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, where your life is kind of, um, your mind is is captive basically by um, just constant thoughts about food and using food as a way of controlling your life. Um and and uh, and and also like anesthetizing yourself. Um, but anyway, what, so when I say I'm binging and purging three times a day, I'm not saying like you know I'm having a, a meal with a friend and then I go into the bathroom. I mean, I was like going to the grocery store and buying bags of food and coming home and binging and purging it was you know really quite awful time for me. Um, and and at that point, I really felt like, gosh, I am like I was just desperate. I just desperately, I, kn- I wasn't going to finish the semester, so I, I called my mom as a last resort. You know, I did not want to have this conversation. I did not want to tell her. I was so embarrassed and so ashamed. Um, you know, and I mean, she was, she was so cute about it, and was. I mean, I was like, the story is that she, I told her, and she was like, I'll be there. I was like, Mom, you got to come. I called her and I just said, look, you, you got to come and stay with me because I'm going to, I'm not going to finish the semester. I, I just, I'm my, you know, I'm a bulimic and I need you to come and just literally just stay in my apartment oh, while I yeah. study for my exams because I will not be able to finish out. So my mom, like, she's so sweet. She gets her two little preppy little canvas tote bags, goes to the public library and checks out like 25 books on eating disorders, like as, as, probably all of the books they had on eating disorders. <laughs> she, she checked them all out. And so while I was try, you know, studying for my exam, she's sitting there reading, um, you know, reading all these books, trying to figure out like what's going on with me and how she can help me, which was, yeah. you know, I so love sweet. That. Yeah. I, I, I kind of picture she's like Mary Poppins coming with her bag. She's the best. And of course it was books, right? You know, because her, you know, yeah, no. she has, she had no, um, she, she just had no idea how to deal with this. This was yeah. so foreign to her. Right. Yeah. But I love that she immediately, okay, I'll be there and we're going to, you know, we're going to figure this out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what you needed. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I will typically ask my guests if there's somebody in their life that was an influence outside of family and friends. And for you, it was an author, uh, Caroline Adams Miller. And, uh, she was the author of one of the books that your mom mm-hmm. brought to you. Talk about, um, you know, reading her book and then making the decision to call her as well. So, um, you know, I don't even, I don't remember what the exactly my, the exams were. It was some, it's a philosophy exam or something, but anyhow, so I'm studying away and my mom turns to me and she says, oh my gosh, I'm reading this memoir. It's called My Name is Caroline by this woman, Caroline Adams Miller. 
And my mother's like, you got to call her. She's you. She has the same life story. She went to the same, she'd gone to the school in Washington, D.C. called NCS. Um, it's just sort of, you know, a like high-pressured private school in D.C. Um, she was an athlete. She was a swimmer. And then she'd gone to Harvard. And she wrote this memoir about being bulimic at, when she was an undergrad. And, um, and my mom's like, you got to call her. She's this thing called a coach. I know she's like, I don't know what this thing is. She's a life coach. I don't know what that is, <laughs> but you need to call her. Cause I think she can help you. Yeah. So, um, reluctantly, cause at that point I still really thought like, I, I got this, I can handle this. I'm going to fix this on my own. You know, I just, you know, I just need to find the right diet approach, you know, like I was still in this mindset of like, I can do, I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody else's help. Mm-hmm. Um, I just need my mom to help me get through this like the next few weeks. Cause they're extra stressful, but then I got this. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I, I reluctantly called her and the first thing she said was, okay, well, you know, we've got to get you eating three meals a day and stabilize your, your eating. And I'm, I just hung up the phone. Immediately, it's like nope. Caroline said that. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was like, nope, not going to happen. No thanks. I don't want anyone's contro- controlling what I eat. No thanks. That was yeah. like my number one way of controlling the world <laughs> was yeah. controlling what I ate. So I was like, right. yeah, I don't think so. Could that sounds that awful. No thanks. So I hung up, and um, off you know I go trying to sort of figure this out on my own, but things were not better. I mean, I was barely kind of getting by. And what, what year were you at this point at, in Harvard? Uh, I just finished my junior year. Okay. Yeah, so I had one more year left. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time I got to the end of my senior year, I was, like, at the point. It was around that time, maybe about a year and a half later. I'd spent enough time. And I remembered because Caroline had, in her book, she talked about how she'd gone to OA. It was Overeaters Anonymous, sort of the 12-step program for food addiction. Mm-hmm. And I'd remembered that from the book. And I remember listening. It was like on NPR or something one morning. Um, it was during my senior year. And I was listening to NPR in my room. And someone was talking about food addiction. And they were describing this. And I was thinking, well, that's what I have. That sounds like what I've got, you know. Yeah, I, I have no control. Like I just have no control over this. And so, she, on, the, on the radio, they were talking about Food Addicts Anonymous and OA and this twelve-step program. And I was like, all right, that's what that other woman had gone to. So I went to my first meeting in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I went to my first um, Food Addicts Anonymous meeting. I was like the disgruntled, angry. Arms crossed in the front, you know, just like sitting in the, in the I don't back. want to be here, yeah. but I'm here. Yeah. I don't really, yeah, exactly. I don't want to be here, but fine. <laughs> um, and I got a sponsor. And so that was the beginning of my getting well. Because it really, you know, it's, as they say in 12-step programs, like you're only as sick as your secret. So it was the beginning of me um, talking about it for the first time to anyone other than my mom. And mm-hmm. actually having a conversation and admitting, like, yeah, I... I, I do this and I'm so embarrassed and and then and sitting in a room with you know 20 other women and men too who were saying like oh yeah I do the same thing did, that was, was that did that make you feel better to be you know very often if we feel we're not the only one with a problem you know and we are able to engage with others going through the same thing that's a little bit of a relief oh I mean it changed my life completely and I think now it's one of the I mean 
I think it's the reason why I feel like it's important for me to share my story just because so many women still don't talk about their struggles with, with food because they're embarrassed. It's embarrassing, right? It's like, we still have a lot of shame around that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but any, yeah, so OA really, or at the time it was Food Addicts Anonymous, but that really was the beginning of my healing. And um, about six months after that, I remember I called Caroline back and I said, um, you know, remember me? She probably, yes, you hung up on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Remember yeah. me? I was that person that hung up on you. And I was like, now I'm ready. I said, I was like, I'll do whatever. I'm Aww. ready. Yeah. I'll do whatever. I'm I'm not desperate. I want to get better. I want this behind me. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Yeah. And, and nothing will happen before that point that point of being ready. Right. Surrendering. Right. Right. It's but I one one story that I think I, I have to tell because I think it's was such an important sort of you know, mark in my healing process was that I was dating my now husband back then. We met when I was um right before my senior year in college. And Coming clean to him was probably the most, the scariest thing I could possibly imagine. Like, here's this guy. I really like him. We've been dating now for nine months or whatever it was. And and he didn't know. Didn't know at all. Um, and so I came to, and I, because now that I was in Food Acts Anonymous, I had a sponsor and I had a, you know, a food plan and it was pretty rigorous. So it was pretty hard to hide it. Mm. So I came down to visit him in New York and I was, you know, sort of sheepishly said, well, you know, I'm in this program. You know, I said, I had an eating disorder. Well, I, I have an eating disorder, and I, I'm really trying to do something about it. And um, and I was so embarrassed. I'm like, oh, these people are so weird. You know, like the, all the people in Food Acts Anonymous are so weird. And Chris, my now husband, um, you know, he just looked at me, and he said, well, you're there, and I love you, so they can't be that bad. Oh. Yeah. Oh, what a great guy. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. was – and that was, like, really – I mean – he, I like gave him my shame, my just the worst, most embarrassing, um, just I, I it's hard to even describe how it's like the most intimate part of you. Yeah, yeah. it's just and he embraced it. Yeah, yeah. and it's sort of like I gave it to him, and he just was held it, you know. Yeah. And it's like as Brene Brown talks about vulnerability and how, mm. um, you know, those are the points in your life where things change. Yeah, yeah. Where you kind of forgive yourself, I think, right? Yeah. And, and that's beautiful. Yeah. I hope he's listening. And he <laughs> <like that. laughs> um, so you went on to, um, you know, you decided to go and get a master's in um, applied positive psychology, which some of, some of our listeners may know and, and some of them may not, um, at the University of Penn here mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And then you further went and got your Ph.D. from Columbia. I wanted to point out that you were only you were one of only 33 people in the world at that time to to be studying this um, applied positive psychology, yeah. um, which is fascinating to me. And, you know, anything around studying the mind and helping us to 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 be better and get more clarity, I think, is, is so important and wonderful. Um, talk a little bit about those years and what it was like to be in that very select small group mm-hmm. um, and what were some of the key lessons that you took from it. I was always interested in, in the social sciences. I, in, as an undergrad, I was a social, in social anthropology. I was concentrated in social anthropology. And then um, in the years after college, I was so into my recovery. And then um, my recovery from eating sort of, sort of transformed into this, like, 
oh, like self-development, right? Like, okay, if I can, if I can beat bulimia, if I can get over this, like I, I thought I would never be normal again. Like I thought I would, I just thought this was, I was gonna have to live with this for the rest of my life. I genuinely thought like I will be obsessed with food and think about it all day. And that's just my cross to bear. Like that's the way my life is going to be. And I remember thinking that's it. And to, in like the span of two and a half years, you know, after college to be at a place where that's not at all how I live my life. And, you know, and I really felt like I'd put that kind of behind me. Um, and I, and was like a miracle to me. So Mm -hmm. I thought like, wait a minute, if I can get, if I can get over this, like, what else can I do with my life? Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. that really sort of sparked this another interest in me and understanding like why, um, you know, just fascinated with why we do what we do. Like, why did I do that? Why do we do these self-sabotaging behaviors? What's that about? You know, right. When we have choice, why do we choose exactly. certain things? Yep. Um, and uh, so anyhow, so really interested in that. And also I thought, like, I'd really like to do this, this coaching thing. Like, this is really would be a fun career. And um, But my parents will never go for, like, sending me to some coach, you know. Like, if I came home and was like, guys, I'm going to, you know, coach you or whatever it was. Right, my parents right. would be like, what are you talking right. about? So were, you, were you thinking they still want me to be a doctor or a lawyer and, well, you know, a wasn't. CEO? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just grew up in a family where um, – you know, both it just there was sort of a track, right? There's like yeah. Ivy League, then you go to you're a lawyer, you're in finance, you're a doctor. Yeah. You know, I was interested in like I'd been doing documentary filmmaking, like that was really a little know, bit off the yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was left field in <laughs> yeah, my family. Right, so um right. so yeah, right. So I was like, This is a little too woo woo for my for my family. And um but I was working with this woman, Caroline, and she had been on some listserv and I said, well, by the way, Mar- this, this professor, Marty Seligman, is starting a um, master's program in applied positive psychology, and you should just apply. Do it. Wait, I'm sorry. Who said that to you? This is Caroline. So oh, yes, I Caroline. was working. Okay. I was still working with her. And, yeah. um, and so she was like, you know, you should just apply for this. And... It didn't require – if you'd been working for more than three years, you could just submit a CV. You didn't have to even take a GRE. So to me, it was like no-brainer. So easy, right? Write an essay, interview on the phone, submit my CV, and don't tell anyone. And if I get in, great. If I don't, no big deal. Right. So um, – and I'd read his book, um, Authentic Happiness, maybe six months earlier. And that was the first time where I was like, oh, there's there's a whole field of psychology a new field of psychology where they're not focusing on dysfunction and disorder and disease, but they're actually in pathology, but they're focusing on, you know, health, well-being, mm, um, the opposite. Yeah. Actually, and like yeah. optimal functioning, thriving. And I thought, mm. well, this is really like, this is what I'm interested in. Like, yeah. this is great. So, um, and I mean, I think we can go into a longer conversation about why, um, because for when people are trying to recover from things like, you know, drug addiction and, you know, eating disorders or alcoholism um, and sort of acute behavior, sometimes therapy um, therapy's a wonderful tool and is so important, but it's not the whole package because mm-hmm. you're not going to talk yourself out of an eating disorder. You're not going to talk yourself out of alcoholism. Like you just need to, you need someone to help you, give you structure to stop the behavior, to kind of get 
on even footing, right? Right. First. Yes. So, you know, someone's saying like, well, why do you think you, why do you think you binged and purged? I'm like, I don't know, but I, I just need to not do that right now. <laughs> like, right. I just need to. <laughs> I know it's bad. Right. Like, <laughs> I just, right. I, that's not yeah. the question that's helping me right now. Yeah. Like, why is not helping me? Mm-hmm. Like, I need so- someone to tell me what, like, how, what do I need to do? Like, I need someone to help me, like, relearn how to live a good day. Yeah. Really. Right. So, um, anyhow, I was really interested in positive psychology. So he, just by sheer luck, happened to be starting a positive psychology program at Penn. And I thought, like, well, this is great, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and so I applied. And I, mind you, had told my friends and family that I would never go back to school after college. I was oh. like, I'm done. I Academia. Yeah, that's interesting, it's right? Over. That was a tough oh, yeah. time for you. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. Like, never going back to school is terrible. And then, of course, that I get into this program and I go, you know, I called my parents. I'm like, so I got into this master's program, positive psychology. My parents like almost <laughs> dropped the phone. Like, what? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> and I like it. Not only do I, yeah. I like it. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm really excited about this. Yeah. So um, anyhow, everybody was really supportive about it. And I, and the reason I brought up Caroline was that so about – we both get so I apply I get in I call her I'm like oh I'm so excited I got into the program and she was like well I also applied and I'm going to be now your colleague so we stopped uh working together as as coach and client and became colleagues and now very very good friends and have tremendous conversations I'll bet oh yeah yeah. she's really one of the dearest people in my life I really have so much um I mean, I just have so much gratitude for, for her. I, yeah. I I don't know that I would have um, recovered in the way that I did um, without her, really. Like, it, it really set a trajectory in my life. Yeah. having I think having one person or multiple that believe in you and, and show that to you, I think, can make such a difference. Right. Um, I, I think it would be helpful for our listeners, again, who might not understand what this, these studies are all about, for you to talk about just three of the things that um, you've taken away from um, this program. And I listed them here and just kind of talk about how they um, affected your life and how it's a great reminder for people. Um, uh, and some, the first one, when I look at it, I think, we always say money can't buy happiness, right? right? It's kind of a cliche. But to really understand that and let it kind of settle in your bones is a whole different thing. Um, so three of these things, we're chasing after only external goals um, will only lead to misery. Um, having too many choices increases our anxiety. And third, self-discipline trumps IQ. So talk about the first one, you know, chasing after external goals. How do, how do we not do that in a culture that we live in? Right. So um, there's great professors, um, Ryan and DC, and they have done a whole, like, body of um, work on um, motivational theory but um, called self-determination theory. But one of the things that they found in their research is that it's what we call extrinsically motivated goals. So goals that are motivated by, um, you know, like they're a means to an end. Um, so that's, and that most sort of recognized ones would be like fame, image, and money, reward. And, and mind you, like a lot of what we do in life is for extrinsic motivated purposes, right? Like mm-hmm. we're, we're motivated at work by a salary to some extent. Right. 
there's other factors that motivate us as well, but mm-hmm. a big one is our salary, and that's an extrinsically motivated goal. So, but anyhow, um, people that were focused on extrinsic goals, fame, image, and money, as opposed to intrinsically motivated goals, so goals that are um, about you know your health or relationships with other people or um, self-development, mastery, um, that were less happy than the people. So extrinsically motivated people that were more oriented to have externally motivated goals were less happy than those that were focused more on intrinsic goals. And it really makes sense, right? Because I think I, you know, grew up um, in a sort of high achievement environment. And I Mm -hmm. think this, I think people see this all the time where you can see these high achievers and they've, they've grabbed the brass ring, like they've done so well, or they've, you know, they've, they've achieved so much and yet they're sort of not happy. Right. Mm -hmm. And it seems so, it just seems so counterintuitive. Like it makes no sense. Why, why in the world would they not be happy? Like they've, they've, they've achieved what they wanted to achieve. But if that, if the goal isn't coming from that place of this, like an internal desire to, um, develop more skill or to, you know, have better relationships with people, um, or for your community or something like it has a larger meaning to it, mm-hmm. uh, that matters to you. Like it's in alignment with your values, right. then it's not going to really, it, do, it doesn't boost your well-being. Yeah. It doesn't lead you anywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about two and three. Yeah. We'll be right back. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website. FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F O L E Y H I L L S L E Y Group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. 
Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio today with Dr. Sasha Hines. And again, Sasha is a psychologist with a master's in applied positive psychology, and she has a doctorate in developmental psychology. So we're talking all about psychology and the mind and emotions and all of that stuff I love to talk about. Um, and just before the break, we were discussing three things that, that you've taken away and learned from your studies. And the second one is about having too many choices increases anxiety. And I think, oh, my God, the world we live in, it choices right. everywhere. Right. I, I, this one I love so much because I think that, um, you know, the American way is is that we have been – it's choice. Like, we – we strive for more choice. Like the more choice, the better. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the American way. Right. And um, Barry Schwartz, who's at Swarthmore, actually right around here. Yeah. Um, you know he uh, he's done some really interesting research on, and he wrote a book called um, I think it's called The Tyranny of Choice. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Anyhow, um, he is a wonderful man and a great researcher. And one of his findings is that choice actually increases our anxiety. So um, that's not to say no choice, but if we have too many choices. And the reason is that um, is it's like opportunity cost, right? So if you have A to B choices, you have three choices, A, B, or C, and you choose B, meh, you're like, well, B's not the best, but A and C aren't any better, so I'm fine. I'm glad I chose B. But if you've been given choices A through Z and you choose P, then you're like, wait a minute, there are 25 other options that I didn't check out. And maybe like this is this direction, this P direction is really not going very well for me. And I'm, you know, there's obstacles and because guess what? Life is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And out of our control. Right. And so things aren't, you know, it's not as rosy or as wonderful as you fantasized it would, you know, it would be. And so now in your mind, you've created 25 other possible choices that could have been better. Mm. And so it just ramps up your anxiety as opposed to sort of the acceptance of like, well, I, I made the best of the situation that, you know, or the best of the choices that I had. So I, I think that there's really, there's a lot of truth in that, like, we need freedom from choice. Yeah, like, I agree. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, why I choose a boutique over the mall. Right. <laughs> seriously. No, these are like, I mean, it's so, these are like silly little things, but yeah. they actually really matter. And in fact, there was an article about Barack Obama during his presidency. It was in Vanity Fair, and it was saying how he had someone choose his suits the night before. They were be, you know, he had no choice in his wardrobe because he wanted to minimize the amount of choices that he had to make mm-hmm. during the day so that he used, because you want to, you know, cr- give space to actually making choices that matter mm-hmm. and not waste on those, like a thousand little choices yeah. because you you do get decision fatigue. I mean, it's a whole other topic. But, yeah. Oh, it makes right. so much sense to me. Right. Um, let's talk about how self-discipline trumps IQ. So this comes out of the research that Angela Duckworth has done, and she's a professor at, um, at Penn, a very a brilliant and charismatic professor. Um, she and uh, she's done all the research on grit, um, and in fact wrote a book called Grit last year. It just came out last year. Yeah. Um, but what she found in one of her earliest studies was that she was looking at kids who were succeeding in high school, and I can't remember exactly what the metric was. Maybe it was like where they, how they'd scored on their 
SATs, or I can't even remember exactly what the metric was. But in any case, she had data on their IQ. They'd taken an IQ test, and she had also been measuring like how the effort that they'd been putting in and how they scored on this grit scale that she developed. And their score on this grit scale, which is measuring you know passion and perseverance towards a long-term goal, how they scored on the grit scale was more predictive of their success than was their IQ score. Mm. And that, to me, is just a, such a revelation because I think that we, um, you know, we sort of are obsessed with being brilliant or genius or smart and, like, what does that mean? And I think we're beginning to learn that it means many different things and it's and you can be smart in many different ways, but that effort and time and practice matter tremendously. Yeah. And that's such good news for everybody because you have so much more control, right? There's no, like, genetic propensity. Not only that, I think for, for, for those of us who um, academics didn't come as easily, it kind of, you know, makes you feel let off the hook a little bit that it's not something that's predetermined, right? Your smarts are not predetermined. You can put effort in and right. and, and focus and I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely grew up in a in a world where it was sort of uncool to show that you've worked hard. I mean, it was like if oh, you say you studied, then you're dumb. You know, it was wow. like the smarter wow. you are, the less you have to study. Yeah. So, you know, people would sort of be like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't study for this exam at all. So not true. Of course they did. But, <laughs> you know, we're really um, I think that there's been a shift and people are really beginning to understand like effort is Effort is awesome. Like effort is everything, right? You, you, your your success, your your like your ability to do well in life is wholly hinged on your effort. Right. And and I think that that's like it's been a very that's a good shift. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I a quote from you um, just resonated with me, and I love it. You said, "To give and receive love is the foundation of a happy life." What does that mean to you? Um, I had this wonderful one of one of my professors at Penn um, was a man named Chris Peterson, and who who died a few years ago, and it was just a beloved um, researcher, and what, and really was sort of the one of the founding sort of founding fathers of positive psychology, along with with Marty Seligman. But anyhow, he used to say to us as students, he would say, "You can sum up positive psychology in three words: other people matter." And it's so true that if you if it's it's empirically true and it's sort of intuitively true mm. um, that people who spend their life, you know, giving and loving and tr- doing things for other people and caring about other people and also receiving that love back um, are people that that are report you know they they report to be the happiest people. Mm. You know, it's it's if we can take the focus off of ourselves, which, um, you know, comes from ego, which that could be a whole other show, right? You know, how do we let go of that, that, um, that thinking about how we are portrayed and how we look to others and comparing? Um, I think if we were able to do that better and, and more often, you know, that speaks to that, you know, that focusing on others. Yeah. Taking, well, I think one of the criticisms that positive psychology gets is that it's, you know, 
it's superfluous, right? Like it doesn't matter. Happiness is not urgent. Um, making people, you know, more well, more happy, like that's not an urgent problem, right? Like what's an urgent right. problem is someone who's clinically depressed and helping someone who's in clinical, you know, in that state of clinical depression or um, has anxiety attacks or is dealing with, you know, deep uh, psychopathology, personality disorders, whatever, that psychology has been more oriented toward um, um, in the more medical model, right, of sort of correcting pathology. Um, and and the criticism, I think, of people would say of positive psychology is like, well, it doesn't, you know, it's not urgent. It doesn't matter. Like, it's, it's not important. It's not important. Right. right. And I, the truth is, is that study after study shows that people who are happy, people who self-report as being happier are more community-oriented, more giving, more altruistic, you know, do volunteer more. I mean, they are so much more other-oriented, mm. which contributes to their sense of well-being, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, happiness is not, um, you know, glib or unimportant. Happiness is deeply important because happy people have the space and the sort of like the mental space and energy mm-hmm. to be giving and to to you make know, the to, world a better place yes, right? and to care for other people and would you say healthier and healthier too and healthier physically yes yeah. barbara fredrickson's done some really cool research on that which is it even affects our immune system as well yeah i bet um Regarding global issues, which there are numerous, and uh, we were talking before the show about the fact that the world we live in today um, allows us to know what's happening everywhere at all times. Um, what are what are what is the most concerning global issue for you that you would like to see change for your children? Oh my, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think that. The environment, obviously, is something that I'm really scared of. It's certainly not my bailiwick. I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert um, in that arena, but but it's concerning to me. It's like mm-hmm. taking care of our planet. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, in my field, I think the thing I would be most would like my children to understand is how their mind and how they think really creates how they feel and how they feel then in turn creates you know how they act or what they do the actions that they take and and if they can really begin to understand sort of a this it's a sort of cognitive behavioral therapy model right that your thinking creates your behavior and and the way then that in which that works and unlocking this sort of puzzle of how our minds work, I think, is going to, is such a revelation. And uh, you know, William James, a century ago, basically said, like the the biggest and most important thing that we've learned in this, you know, in this century or this century, like the most important finding, is how much our attitudes affects our life, right? Like mm-hmm. our affects our experience. Right. And what he was meaning was, you know, how we think shapes how we see the world. And and I and I hope that that that's something that my kids can understand at a younger age than I did. And do you think that we the the way to um, bring this change about for the masses would be just to have these conversations and bring more awareness to the fact that we do have the control. We really do have 
the ability to overcome certain circumstances and adversities and challenges by understanding our mind better. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of taught from a young age to think, like, uh, to, to believe that, I mean, I think about the language that we use with children, like, don't hurt their feelings. Um, and, and so the idea being that you are able to hurt someone's feelings by what you say and what you do, you are actively hurting their feelings. That's not really true. We don't actually hurt anyone's feelings. You, we hurt our own feelings. Like, if someone says something negative to me, I get to decide what that means. Mm-hmm. I can decide, like, that's, you know, wow, that really makes me feel bad about myself. But they're not making me feel bad. I'm feeling bad. That's right. I'm yes, choosing to right. believe something that makes me feel bad. I could also equally, I mean, I think about this in New York City all the time. I mean, I used to live in New York. And people would say all sorts of crazy stuff. I got in the subway. Yeah. And if I don't internalize that. Right. Right? Right. Like, they're right. saying stuff to me. I'm like, Burr. Right, guys. It <laughs> doesn't affect him. Yeah, like he's just yeah, yelling. He's just yes. having. He's just a man on a subway. Right, yelling at me. Crazy right? man on a subway. Right. Yeah. But when it's someone, not you know, with that, no problem. I have a very easy time not making it mean anything. Mm-hmm. But when it's someone who's close to you, or someone who you think maybe it's a position of power or whatever, and they say something to you that makes you feel bad, it's you. You. That's exactly what we believe. We're like. They made me feel bad, but that's not actually what's happening. They said something, and I made it mean that I'm unworthy, or I made it mean that I'm not good enough, or I made it mean that whatever. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. This is, oh, it's like everything hinges on this. Yes, yes. Because it turns people from a place of victimhood, where everything's happening to you, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, the circumstances of your life are just happening to you and you have little control. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that everything in your life is neutral and you get to decide what it means. Yeah. That's huge. That is huge. Yes. Because that's, that's changing um, your reaction to life every minute of every day. Right. And we walk out the door and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, yeah, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see a difference um, when, when you work with people? First of all, are you still um, teaching at Penn? So right um, right now I'm advising some students. I don't know that I'm going to be there next fall. I'm, I'm ho- maybe, hopefully I'll be teaching somewhere more close to home in Pittsburgh. But there you go. Yeah. yeah. Because keep your life convenient. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Lower the yes, stress. Now that I have two kids, yeah. yes. Small children, I yes. should add. Um, do you see a difference in the, I think a lot of, you know, getting to this place, this knowledge, wisdom, whatever you, you want to, you know, whatever word you want to use, um, comes with self-reflection, analyzing yourself, trying to get to know yourself. Do you see um, that women have more of an ability to do that or desire than men? Hmm. That is a great question. I, I think that women um, can get stuck in sort of a pitfall, perhaps, of overanalyzing. I mean, I think and, and, and we all can. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I really like this combination of therapy and coaching. I mean, I think that, you know, therapy is so powerful, having this um, a, a uncovering and understanding why you believe the things that you believe about yourself, about the world, about your family, and, and you know, understanding sort of like the, the genesis of those thoughts and the, gen- and the sort of origin um, of maybe some of the thoughts about yourself that don't serve you, right? Mm-hmm. 
and and I think therapy can be really powerful in uncovering um, and unpacking that. Mm. But what I think the why I love the coaching modality is that I think that coaching sort of offers um, uh, the other half of it because the the understanding the sort of um, you know the the like un- the awareness is only half of it. Mm. There's another half of it which is okay. So I now I know why I do what I do, but I still can't seem to change. Mm. And so I think you know, um, and this is one of the reasons why Marty Seligman called it the applied positive psychology because there was this idea that we need to have an engineering. There needs to be the engineering half of this science, right? Which is um, the application. You need to apply what you what you've learned. The knowledge, the self knowledge that you have, needs to then be applied and practiced, so that you can then begin to change your behavior. Um, which is the name of the? I mean, that's the that's the business that I'm in is helping people change their behavior. So, self awareness is only going to get you half the way there. And I think that's, that's the a, first step. Yes. Yeah, that's the first. And step. I think that yeah. can be a frustrating place for people to be stuck in. Because they're like, I I know I kind of get why I do this. But I'm still doing it. Mm. I'm kind of get, you know, I get how this, like, what this does for me or whatever. But I, I'm still, I'm st- I can't stop. You're tied to it. Yeah. 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 I mean, a really frustrating place. So I think, um, you know, working with a coach and and the sort of coaching has emerged in the last, really, in the last like 15 years. Um, and I think it's emerged from this need that people have. They're like, well, okay, now I'm at this place of awareness. But what I really want is transformation. What I really want is to change. Does a coach show you, kind of create a visual for you of what your life will look like if you change old habits? Right. I think that, um, you know, in coaching there's more of this, of sort of the structure and the practice of, um, of, of the, it is a practice, right? Like changing your habits is a daily practice. So, so it, it, that coaching model really works nicely because you have someone who's kind of providing you the sort of the exercise of mm. having to do these practices every day. Would you say you hold people accountable? Yeah. Yeah. But the accountability alone isn't enough either, right? Mm. So so you, you could be working with someone and they're like, okay, you're going to, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, you know, I, I'm giving you like, you know, three exercises today and you're, you're going to do them. And then after a couple of weeks, people are like, ugh, it's not, I don't, this is not working for me. Yeah. Because if the if the self awareness is like you need both pieces right you need right. this you need the the awareness and you need the application together yeah maybe someone can create an app for this right exactly <laughs> we need some young millennial to create an app um, no but I think that that's so true and I think that you know any any instructions they're only going to work if if the transformation comes from within. From within, it's right? Like that I, mo- it's that shift, that right. moment where where it happened for you, right? And right. Well, I, I think you know, I, I the example for me in my life was with my eating disorder, but I think you know it, it's applicable to any any behavior that people have that's not serving them. And I, I so I had this. I was at a point where I kind of understood why I had an eating disorder, but I still couldn't s- figure out how to not do it. Right. And I needed someone to basically teach me how to 
put together a, a, a good day. Like this is how you actually live a healthy day. Oh, okay. Like I, and then and I had to practice that, and I had to fail, and I had to make mistakes, and then I had to do it again, and I had to practice it day after day after day until it became my new habit. And then that thought, like I'll never be normal again, is like, wait, what? I can't believe I actually had that thought because I can't imagine. It's now equally inconceivable to me to go. I can't even. Imagine going back to that other kind of you, you, you've obsessive it. mind. Do, do, did you reach a point where did you wake up one day and, and say, gosh, I, I really conquered it. I feel as though I don't have to worry about being back in that place. I don't know that I – I don't think that I had sort of a day where it was sort of like a momentary flash where I thought like, oh, wow, I've really beaten this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was a sort of slow, progressive it, you know, experience, yeah. and yeah. then you look back over. And you're just in it. Yeah, like two years it. later, you look back and you think, oh, my gosh, I am really a different person. Yeah. I have really changed, and and my mind has changed. Like, I don't – I'm not having that kind of, you know, just on on a loop, you know, those thoughts on a loop that I just couldn't stop. It was like a tape I couldn't stop. Yeah. Um, and, and really getting to a place to, you know, you get two years later and you think, oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's – I'm, I think so differently now. Yeah. Um, we only have a moment, <clears throat> excuse me, a moment left. Just words of encouragement for someone who might be listening. Oh, my gosh. I think, um, you know, there's nothing too shameful to, to – you need to kind of keep a secret. Um, always reach out. There's always, always someone who's been through it and, and can kind of walk you through the process of – of healing or recovery or just feeling better. Yeah. That's a great way to end the show. Um, Sasha, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. We'll share your information with our listeners, and and I'm sure that um, you'll be able to help somebody out there. Great. Thanks. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Have a great week.